to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-up. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. I'm your host, Greg Stetz. It is my great pleasure to welcome our today's guest, who's one of the most renowned China experts in the world. Kerry Brown is a professor of China studies and director of Lao China Institute at King's College London. He cooperates with multiple institutions focused on international affairs in China, such as Chatham House, China Dialogue, or Young China Watchers, to name just a few. Professor Brown is also an author of multiple best-selling books focused on China's domestic and foreign politics. Kerry, I'm very happy that we have you on the show today. Thank you. To start, please tell us a bit about your background and connection to China. Yes, so I first went to China in 1991 uh, when I was living in Japan. And then I started learning Chinese in about 1993. And then I lived in Inner Mongolia in northern China from 94 to 96. I worked as a diplomat for eight years and three and a half years were in China at the British Embassy in Beijing. And then from 2006, I was at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, mostly dealing with China, but also with Asia. And from 2012 to 2015, I was at the University of Sydney as a professor of Chinese politics. And from 2015 onwards, I'd been back at King's College London as a professor of Chinese studies and the director of the Lao Institute. So I've been dealing with China for nearly, well, a quarter of a century now. Exactly. You have been engaging China as a researcher, a diplomat and an academic for almost 25 years. That's quite a time perspective. How would you compare the Belt and Road Initiative to such policies as going out or go west was actually new within the Belt and Road Initiative. So the the new aspect of the Belt and Road is that it's got a very strong international dimension. In the late 1990s, China had two quite big policies. One was the going west. That was really a domestic policy, so about developing the western regions of China. And the other was going out. And that was to have 50, 100 Chinese state companies that were then kind of supported to invest in the rest of the world. So the scale was pretty restricted. And you could say that the Belt and Road Initiative is on a far larger scale. I mean, generically, it's kind of similar, but its scale is different. The ambition is different. The kind of scope is different. So I suppose it's an idea that really acknowledges China is a much more significant global actor and a much more, um, a larger global actor, and has a space way beyond the kind of very limited territory that was originally being envisaged in these older policies. 
Do you see other differences apart from the territorial scope and China's ambitions? For instance, is the Belt and Road Initiative being implemented in a similar or different way to the policies from the 1990s? Well, it still seems that the Belt and Road is about state enterprises and non-state companies figure in it, but not as much as you would expect. And it's, I think, different because China has much more money now. I mean, it's got much more capital. So we find when you look at the Belt and Road that there is kind of a big involvement of Chinese capital. I guess the controversy is, well, is this capital kind of investment or is it loans? And does it create debt? These kind of issues. So really, when the Belt and Road has been looked at by others like the Financial Times and kind of analysts, uh, there's this sort of heavy involvement of Chinese banks like the China Development Bank and also Chinese funds. There's a Silk Road Fund, which has a significant amount of money, but it's also about how this money is being used and that more about loans and debt, not really what you'd call about with investment as such. In your publications and speeches, you sometimes describe the Belt and Road Initiative as a story that China wants to tell to itself and to the world. What is that story? And how is China trying to communicate this story to the world? So the story is really about how China is a different kind of power to, for instance, the United States. So it's not a hegemon. It's trying to create what was originally called a multipolar world. And I suppose what you really could say now is more a world of kind of win-win outcomes and people being able to engage with Chinese economy and the, the new economy that's emerging in China, the middle class, urban, kind of more service sector orientated, higher consuming. Uh, and this is a sort of huge source of growth. I mean, the Chinese middle class is obviously an enormous economic asset. And the Belt and Road is really about how people might be able to engage with that. Um, how is the story being told? Well, most at the moment through quite a lot of campaigns, seminars, big meetings. There was a huge Belt Road Summit in Beijing in May. There's lots and lots of attempts, I suppose, through the state and also sometimes private sector media from China to try and tell the kind of benefits of this emergence of China on the world stage and how it should matter to everyone, how people should engage with it, but also how it should bring benefit. And so that's a complicated story. Some places it's being received with a very positive attitude and other places it's much more complicated. Obviously, America, Australia, they're not receiving it so well, more kind of complicated. And in the region, Pakistan and other more benevolent countries, they are actually engaging with it very, very deeply. So this is a story with many chapters, many episodes, no simple lines to it. It's not got a simple narrative. It's really like an old Chinese novel, you know, like the, the novel of um, the sort of romance of the three kingdoms, a hundred chapters and every single chapter has a cliffhanger at the end. It's a, not an easy story. Some say that China only communicates its story on the level of governments and elites. For example, just recently we interviewed a Silk Road explorer who traveled all the way from Venice to Beijing. And he told us that even engineers working on the Belt and Road projects in Central Asia have not heard of the Belt and Road Initiative. They only have heard of the new Silk Road. So do you think that China communicates its story to wider population? And if there are issues with that, how can China do it better? The old, uh, well, the new Silk Road, as it was called originally in 2013, when Xi Jinping started to talk about it, 
I think it had a kind of romance about it. It sort of was a brand already. The Silk Road is something that most people know about uh, inside and outside China. They might not know a not lot about it, but they do. They are aware of it. So the Belt and Road Initiative seems strange because it's meant to be the same thing. It's just a new name. But as you said, uh, the, the name is not that well understood. People don't know what a belt is. They don't really understand what the road is. When you explain this idea to many people, uh, they have a kind of very vague understanding or no understanding at all. So in terms of branding, it's strange that there wasn't more about the Silk Road. This new idea has come. Um, I suppose it's because China wanted to you know, make something distinctive and new. It called it One Belt, One Road, and that didn't last very long. And so the Belt and Road Initiative seems to be a compromise. Maybe they will rename it, rebrand it later, because I think there is a kind of lack of understanding of really what this thing is. And everything is in a name. If it's got a kind of comprehensible name like Silk Road, people understand it. And if it has a more complicated name, then things get fairly difficult. What about the reception of China's story in the United Kingdom, which is now exploring opportunities to increase cooperations with partners outside of Europe? Is the Belt and Road Initiative a story that resonates well with the United Kingdom? If so, with who specifically? So in the UK, because of Brexit and leaving the European Union, I guess there's a broad desire to have a stronger relationship with China, even though at the moment it, that's not really kind of manifesting huge increases in investment and finance flows and, and things like this. So the Belt Road Initiative would support this aspiration to have a bigger relation with China. And indeed, um, there is a government spokesperson for the Belt and Road Initiative, I think Douglas Flint, who used to work at HSBC. There is the Northern Powerhouse, which is to develop the northern part of the UK, which is meant to link with the Belt Road Initiative much more. I mean, there are many, many events in the UK about the BRI. Practically, it doesn't really seem to have led at the moment to any real solid outcomes. A few extra investments, a few extra delegations, a bit more understanding and engagement with China. But you would say that at the moment, the majority of people in the UK who even those that engage with China they haven't really kind of grasped this initiative. They, they haven't really kind of embraced it. It's like they're still waiting to kind of fall into its arms. There's not inducement for them to do so. Certainly in the UK, it's a way of understanding how China relates to its region. So there's fairly good understanding that this is a way of China building infrastructure and doing things in the Asian region. And so the Asian Belt Road Initiative, that makes sense up to a point. The European Belt Road Initiative and the UK Belt Road Initiative is far more abstract. In your opinion, what are the three things that most foreigners just fail to understand about the Belt and Road Initiative? First thing is that they don't really understand, you know, structurally what it is. I mean, road, I guess people can understand. Yeah, I mean, like a silk road. Belt is a very abstract thing. I and mean, what is it? So most people need to have explained to them, well, that's kind of... Uh, maritime belt road this this maritime concept and land concept and both parts refer to you know these different parts of this big idea that's the first thing i suppose the second thing is that they probably don't really understand what china wants from it it just seems like a big idea but what is it really china is asking them you know how can they relate to it and i suppose that's also relating to the third thing which is they don't really understand how to engage with it you want to engage with the European Development Bank, then you go to an office of the European Development Bank. 
you can get uh, sort of onto a uh, you know website and find out who can give you answers. There's documents and all sorts of things, and there's a sort of specific route by which you can engage and apply for funding and that kind of thing. Same with most other organisations. With the Belt and Road Initiative, there's a whole group of different partners that can maybe engage with you, but there's no central sort of office for the Belt and Road. There's not a sort of department of the Belt and Road. And I guess this creates disorientation. People don't really know, you know, how do we kind of actually get involved in this big idea? Even for me, you know, I specialize in China. I deal with China. If you said to me, okay, how do I, at my institute at King's College, engage with the Belt and Road? Well, we'd have to have a big think about where we go, who we talk to, how we do it. It wouldn't be, an, it wouldn't be a straightforward thing. It wouldn't be just a case of going online and downloading some information and then being, a, being able to phone someone. And This wouldn't be so straightforward. So I think those are the three things. Of course, I also have to ask how the situation looks like the other way around. So what are the three things that Chinese get wrong about foreigners in regards to the Belt and Road Initiative? What are the mistakes that are being made in communicating the initiative? What are the misperceptions related to the Belt and Road Initiative on the Chinese side? I think the first is that China tells stories in a different way to the way that Westerners, meaning European and Americans and Australians, New Zealand a stealth story. So the first issue really is that the way of storytelling is sometimes quite different. And the Belt and Road is quite a straggling, difficult, complicated concept. It doesn't really have the neatness that I think often, you know, the outside world wants in the story. I think the second thing is um, it doesn't really have seen that the Chinese have thought hard about how they present this idea of win-win. Win-win is a very kind of lazy concept in a way. Yes, of course, we all want to benefit from things, but it needs to be very specific. And I think we Westerners kind of like things to be quite specific. And the Belt and Road is quite an abstract idea. So the third reason is win-win is this very strong idea put forward by the Chinese. And yet I think that there is a feeling that a lot of the time the Belt and Road is not about win-win. It's about China doing things on its own terms, creating debt, creating imbalances, creating asymmetry. And it's sort of like a game which is loaded against those who play it with China. And there isn't a feeling really that this is a very balanced and level playing field. And I think that the Chinese government and many Chinese companies and many kind of partners still have this idea that there's an imbalance and it's in the West's favorites, not in their favor, that they're kind of still weak and they need help developing and all the rest of it. Whereas, in fact, their economy capacity now is often very, very equal to the West or even sometimes superior to it. And it's them that are in the position, I suppose, of really being the leaders and needing to create a sense of stronger partnership and more balance. Not always that China plays these games to ruthlessly win them. I think that's that's the third issue. What about your own personal definition of the Belt and Road Initiative and its story? Do you have a distinct point of view on it? Well, it's a geopolitical concept, which is trying to tell the world what China wants in a way which avoids this issue of it contesting and competing with America. It's really China trying to create its own space. And that's absolutely logical because China is the second biggest economy in the world. It's such a hugely important player. It needs space. And this is a, an attempt to play to China's economic strengths 
in ways that don't create too much tensions with partners around it. We're going to start these issues of China sort of being an emerging hegemon and being a sort of competitor with America and all of these very difficult, nasty issues. This is China's best story that it can tell the world. But even so, we can still see there are many, many issues about that story uh, which are, are being resolved at the moment. This is not this is not a straightforward thing. This is not going to be a straightforward process. So as BRI is not a straightforward process, as you say, what materials do you read yourself to get to know China's story about the Belt and Road Initiative? How can you get a full picture if that is even possible? So on information about the Belt and Road, uh, there's a whole variety of different kinds of discourse and different kinds of language. So, of course, official government information Uh, so through white papers or through government statements, elite leadership speeches, that kind of thing. That's an important source, but it is a very, very particular source. You can't really um, in completely take it as representative. It's representative of an elite attitude, but it's certainly material that anyone who wants to engage with the Belt and Road has to look at because it gives a very, very, very broad framework. On top of that, of course, is promotional material. So series of uh, different sorts of delegations and producing different kinds of material, Chinese state media, companies that produce material about the Belt and Road. So this also is quite useful in building up a picture of what these different partners and stakeholders believe the key thing about the Belt and Road is they engage with the outside world, this with the various sort of network of partners that they're working with. And then, of course, there's the Western discourse about the Belt and Road and that different sort of iterations of that. So we have material in the Financial Times, Economist, material that's produced by Western academics. Uh, all of that is diverse. Some of it is relatively supportive and some of it is very, very critical. Uh, but it's a particular kind of discourse. And it is approaching Belt and Road Initiative from a different analytic and a different cultural attitude. And what we really have when we look at these different sorts of language is a whole variety of different discourses, representative of specific angles, but they're not really representative of the whole thing. So you can't really look in any particular direction. You have to hover over all of these different languages and evaluate them, use them for different areas that you're looking at and, and kind of try and synthesize where you can. And then just to basically accept the differences where you can't This shows you the kind of complexity of this idea. And so anyone who really wants to deal with the type Belt and Road has to almost be fluent in these, these different kinds of materials. Uh, it gives a whole variety of different perspectives, and that is showing the complexity of the idea. I think we've kind of all seen now this is really more about a process and reaching a particular very, very strict conclusion. And I think that's what is unique about the Belt and Road in many ways from China's point of view, that it is a process and a commitment to a process. It's not really about reaching some final kind of definitive conclusion. And that's it for today. Kerry, thank you for sharing your thoughts about the story of the Belt and Road Initiative with us. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. That's 
this week's Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.